I invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Leviticus as we continue in our study. Uh, this is a worship manual, really, for Old Testament Israel. And uh, this morning we come to the, maybe the most significant portion of uh, their worship, the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16 of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. It's one of the most powerful and poignant revelations of the gospel in all of the Old Testament. And so we see here uh, just a wonderful illustration of God's love and His grace to protect us from the judgment we rightfully deserve. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. That was chapter 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do so... He shall. And so shall he do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. 
And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on, a, on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statue to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this statue... This shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Oh God in heaven, these are words from another time, another dispensation. And yet, Lord, uh, we, we trust that you have a message for us in these words as you reveal yourself, as you reveal the truth about ourselves. And you show us the beauty of your grace. And so we ask you to give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, as you may have noticed again, Leviticus is not the easiest uh, book to read. Uh, it is a manual. Uh, some of you like reading manuals. Uh, maybe you find it um, uh, appealing in that sense. But, but this is a manual for worship. And, uh, and yet, it, uh, here we have in chapter 16... Uh, some incredibly important lessons uh, for the church then and for the church today. Uh, the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom, Yom Kippur, is one of the most important of the Jewish holidays, uh, celebrated every year. In fact, uh, Jews will be celebrating it this year, just a few weeks, uh, September 15 and 16. Uh, since there's no temple, uh, they won't be doing all of this because uh, you don't have the most holy place or the altar, or those things. But they will be gathering together. They will be fasting. They will be praying. Uh, it's a day of confessing of sin and, and trusting in God's atonement. Well, the benefit of uh, the Day of Atonement for the people of Israel, as uh, Moses gave this to them, as the Lord gave this to them, is that it, it, it correctly orients the Israelites to the essential realities of, ex of their existence as God's people. Remember, the Israelites not that long ago were in Egypt for hundreds of years. Uh, they had been immersed in Egypt in a pagan culture. They, 
uh, culture affects us. It affected them. They would tend to think about God, the living God, in pagan sorts of ways. Uh, They're not well versed in the realities of the true God and what it means to live as His holy people. They need to be taught. And Leviticus 16 is meant to help teach them. Uh, That fact uh, makes this text very relevant for our own day as we live in an increasingly paganizing culture. As we have secularized, uh, removing God from the public square, removing God from polite conversation, uh, we are also, as as a society, becoming increasingly paganized with pagan ways of thinking about God. Uh, People increasingly, and even in the church, uh, feel free to imagine God or reimagine God uh, in in whatever ways seem good or right to them. Uh, Let me just give you an example. Those on the left imagine God to be happy about homosexuality. Those on the right imagine God to be happy about self-centered consumerism. We create God in ways that suit us. But our delusions do not change the reality of who God actually is. And it's essential for our eternal well-being to learn what God is really like. What He's really like. It's it's essential we learn the reality of of God and what is required then to live in His presence. Um, Kevin Young broke this this text down into three points points that I thought were helpful, and so I'm going to be borrowing from him on that. The uh, first is, uh, the lessons we're going to look at is the consuming fire of God's holiness, the pervasive, polluting, corrupting reality of sin, and then the, the grace of God. And so the reality of God, the reality of sin, the reality of grace will be our three uh, headings this morning. Uh, the, the first lesson of the Day of Atonement is a lesson concerning the consuming nature of the holiness of of God. Uh, the Day of Atonement would, would begin with the priests carefully preparing themselves because this was a big day, particularly for the high priest. He was going to do something profoundly dangerous. He was going to enter into the most holy of place, uh, uh, place the presence of the living God. This is, he, this is something he did only once a year. Uh, but it was a very dangerous place to be. If you notice how the text begins, it begins with a reminder. So, so soon after the death of the two sons of Aaron, remember when they came with, with um, their own ideas of how to worship God and they trotted into the, uh, into the tabernacle and, and the fire of the Lord struck them dead. So now uh, Moses, Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron not to come into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Now, when it says don't come at any time, it it, it means don't come any time except this time. But the warning is there, so that he may not die. You'll find the warning repeated in verse 13. Aaron um, needed to enter the most holy place with with censer, with coals, and then put incense. So there's this billow of smoke, a cloud of smoke, and the text says that the cloud may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. Uh, That is not hyperbole. God's not just trying to make a point. It's it's actually the way it it is. The death of Aaron's two sons reveal this is precisely the way things are. This is what God is like. 
God is not like your grandpa. He's not like your best friend. God is not user-friendly. He's God. Thrice holy God. Sinless angels cover their faces when they worship Him. He's not like anything you know, anything you've ever experienced. The Bible says that when it uses an image to speak of His holiness, it talks about consuming fire. And again, that's not a metaphor. Do you remember how the sons of Aaron died? Leviticus 10 verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. That's very sobering. And it's irrevocably true. The writer uh, of the book of Hebrews says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I know that there are countless people who do not like this version of God. Many would even call themselves Christians. But we just need to remember that not liking something doesn't mean you can escape the reality of it. I don't particularly like uh, February in Michigan, and yet it comes around every single year. Not liking it is not relevant. It doesn't change anything. The first and most basic point of true religion is coming to grips with the reality of the true God. As He is. Not God as you would prefer Him to be. The Day of Atonement just brings people's focus to the reality of God as a holy God. This is what He is like. This is who He is. Well, you can see why it would be a sobering morning for Aaron. You can be sure he paid careful attention to all that God had commanded him. He had to carefully wash himself. Then he had to put on all linen garments, which was plain cloth, probably white, just plain linen garments. He had to take off, in other words, his beautiful priestly robes. Remember that the priest was given this, this just gorgeous blue and purple and gold. Um, it, it, the priest's outfit was truly glorious. And he had to take all that off and put it aside and take on now the clothes of a common slave or a servant. Does it remind you of anyone who has to set aside his glory and take the form of a servant to accomplish the work of atonement? Lethem says, among his fellow men, his dignity as the mediator between man and God was unsurpassed, and his splendid priestly clothes drew attention to the glory of his office. But in the presence of God, even the high priest is stripped of all honor. He becomes simply the servant of the king of kings as he carries out this critical task of atonement. Aaron would then take a bull and he would sacrifice that bull for his own sins and the sins of his household. And he would take the blood of that bull into the holy of holies to atone. Um, So as he goes into the Holy of Holies, and remember, boys and girls, the tabernacles is separated into different parts. You have the the, uh, courtyard, then you have the holy place, which is the first room in the tabernacle, and then the most holy place, the back room. And there's a veil that stands between the holy place and the most holy place, a beautiful, beautiful veil. And, And in the most holy place, behind the veil, is the ark. 
This, this box overlaid with gold with the two cherubim, one on each side, and their wings are stretched over towards one another, and their heads are bowed. And God says there would be a cloud above the cherubim, and that's where the glory of God would be. God, of course, inhabits everywhere, right? But in a particular way, they would meet with God just as uh, God was with Israel in the, in the cloud of fire and smoke in the wilderness. Well, God is now present here, and that's where Aaron needs to go. And he needs to go, remember, with the incense, with the smoke that protects him from viewing, looking on God. To look on God would be immediate death. I want you to just imagine the drama of watching this. You're a part of the crowd standing outside the tabernacle, and you know exactly what's happening. Aaron has come, and he's robed and he's clothed in these plain linen garments. This very, very important man. And you know that he's going to go now into the most holy place, and you know exactly the danger that he's in. It hasn't been that long ago his two sons have been put to death. Harrison writes, punctilious attention to the observance of the regulations was clearly of the greatest importance and the interval during which the high priest was out of sight of the congregation would be filled with tension and drama relieved only when the Israelites saw him emerge. You see, a living Aaron coming walking out of the holy place was evidence that he had done it correctly and that the atonement was successful. Uh, Tradition says, we don't have this in the Bible, but tradition says that a, a rope would have been tied to the high priest, that in case he didn't do it right, in case he looked upon the glory of God, in case he was struck down dead, he could be dragged out without anyone needing to go in after him. So the first reality of the Day of Atonement is just the reality of the nature of God in His holiness. And it is that truth, you see, that makes everything else necessary and coherent. If you remove that truth, this is just religious gobbledygook. Who cares? Let's just have a meal. Let's just all say, we, you know, we love God and we're going to worship God and let's, let's kill the fattened calf and celebrate. If you don't have that reality, nothing else here makes sense. But if you have that reality of the holiness of God as He actually is, and if God has provided a way for your sin to be dealt with, well, then you'll pay attention to that. It's the same is true today. You know, if we don't, if we don't comprehend what God is actually like, uh, we'll, we won't understand what sin really is about. Uh, we won't understand the necessity of the atonement. We won't understand the glory of grace. We'll know the words, but we won't feel the weight or the severity and the beauty of them. You'll never be tempted to worship without understanding the reality of our thrice holy God who is a consuming fire of all that is evil. And that then secondly helps us understand the reality of sin. Because the Day of Atonement is a lesson in sin. It's a lesson particularly in the pervasive nature of it, that, that everything is polluted by Israel's sin. All the Israelites, uh, from, the, from the high priest to the lowest, um, humblest servant, uh, all the people are, are, are affected with sin and, and polluted by sin. And even all the holy objects of the, the, temp, the tabernacle and the, the objects of worship, it's all been defiled by Israel's uncleanness, by their transgressions, by their sins. Harrison says the ceremonies of the day made abundantly clear God's detestation of sin, which, if it was continued, resulted in defilement and death. One of the things, you know, you wouldn't think this would be true, but we need to be reminded 
God detests, abhors sin. He loathes evil, wickedness, transgression, rebellion. He hates it with all the fire of His holy being. And yet He's given now Israel in the Day of Atonement a way for them to be washed clean of their defilement, the, 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 the things that have corrupted them. He's made a way for them to be, um, to be rescued, you see, from the, the judgment that, that they stand in worthy of. They're ripe for destruction. They have been all along. They're worthy of condemnation. And they need to know this, you see. It would have been very easy for them to assume that their sin was not that big a deal. After all, they were much better than the Egyptians. And God clearly loved them. He had, he had made them His very own possession. So, sure, I mean, sin is a reality. We all stumble, but, but it's not something to be overly concerned about. And, of course, there are countless people who feel that way today. They're quite sure that their mistakes and imperfections are no obstacle to the love and grace and favor of God. Right? They'll freely admit, I'm not perfect, I'm just a human. God understands. And they're confident that the fact that they believe there is a God or uh, the sporadic prayers that they offer, their periodic attempts to better themselves, that that will be more than sufficient to cover over any sins that God might be concerned about. After all, God knows my heart. And we're surrounded with people, countless people. This is their hope. This is their confidence. It might be you this morning, and you're thinking, sure, my sin is, it's real. I wouldn't deny it's real, but I believe in God. I go to church. I'm trying my best. Surely, God is uh, satisfied with those things. Well, you see, this text just brings a screeching halt to every such delusion. <clears throat> God is passionately concerned about your sin. And He tells us plainly that there is one way and one way alone to be cleansed of our sin, to be made acceptable in His sight so that we are not put to death. And the one way is the shedding of blood. You see, what is, what's, what's made patently obvious on the Day of Atonement is that the Israelites cannot make themselves right. This is not a moral reform program. This is a day... For Israel to come face to face as a people with the fact that there's only one way for their sin to be dealt with before this holy God, and that way is by way of a substitute. Blood must be shed. A sacrifice must be made. There's no other way. There's no other way. You cannot, you cannot be forgiven. You cannot be cleansed of the stain of your sin any other way. Now again, people might not like that truth. Scores of people reject that truth, but no one is going to change that truth. It just is the way it is from the mouth of God. There's no other way. And that's what defines the grace. You see, people easily assume that the grace of God is sort of his so easygoing, live and let live disposition towards people. He just loves people. 
Well, he does, but that's not grace. Grace is specifically about God rescuing those very people from their corruption, from their sin, from the, the fire of holy wrath, and doing so by means of a substitute. And so we come to the reality of grace. You see, God displays what grace looks like in this Day of Atonement. Everything about the day would be vivid. Everything about it is, is meant to be etched into your mind. When you see Aaron, the high priest, you've never seen him without his royal robes, and now he's walking like a common slave in this simple white clothing. And then the animals are, are, are slaughtered, and that's always a, a gripping sight. And you know they're being slaughtered, not because they've done anything wrong. They're being slaughtered because you've done something wrong. And the blood is sprinkled. It's all meant to be etched into your mind. But maybe the most vivid drama of the day involves the two goats. Aaron, we're told in verse 8, shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. We're not sure what Azazel is. Some believe it's a place in the wilderness. Some think that it's, tra- it's better translated for destruction. But either way, the point is clear that Aaron takes one of the goats, he, he casts lots, so the, the goats are chosen in a sense by the hand of God, and, and uh, one goat is reserved to be sacrificed, and the other goat is reserved to be a substitute or, or to be a scapegoat. Bearing the sin into the wilderness. The, verse 15, the, the goat is sacrificed. It's, it's killed in the place of the people. And Aaron would take the blood of that goat and sprinkle it with his fingers over the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement. But I think what is more uh, convincing and memorable maybe is what happens to the other goat. This only happens once a year. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. This will take a while. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Again, I want you to imagine what this would look like. You're standing in the crowd, and there's Aaron. And he lays his hands on the head of the goat, and he begins to pray, begins to confess sins. And he's confessing your sins. He's confessing your pride, and your lust, and your idolatry, your greed, your envy, your covetousness, your unforgiving heart, your impatience with others, your anger towards your brothers and sisters, your white lies, your quickness to judge, your stealing and cheating. He's talking about you. He's confessing your very real offenses against this holy God. Every one of them rightfully uh, sentencing you to condemnation. If God were simply just. But as he's confessing those sins, you know that Aaron is doing something miraculous in a sense. Aaron is transferring the guilt of your sin to the goat. That's what's happening. And then when he's done praying, a man has been appointed to take that goat and lead it. And you could watch them go. You could watch them leave the, the, the court of the tabernacle. And then they would, they would head out down the dirt road. And they would move out to the outside of the camp and they would begin to descend maybe up the first hill. And then they would disappear over the hill and they're gone. And you could know that just as surely as the goat was removed from the camp, removed from your sight, your sins had been removed from God's sight. And they're never coming back. 
They're gone. They're forgotten. They can never come back to condemn you. You see, God's gracious atonement means for all the Israelites as as all of their sins have been confessed that all of their sins have been forgiven and all of their guilt has been removed. It's all been taken away never to return. That's the grace of God. Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. That's what God does in grace. That was the blessing of the Day of Atonement. You could go home in the full assurance that your sins had been fully and graciously dealt with, that God was willing to atone for your sin and and the death of a substitute in your place. God was willing to place your guilt on the scapegoat and remove it forever so that you were free now to live in the favor and the love and the grace of God With confidence, you had been cleansed. Well, friends, that day of atonement, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the day of the day of atonement in in person. Every aspect of it is is satisfied and fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, when he came, remember, he came preaching the reality of a holy God and the necessity of, of cleansing. And repentance. Remember um, that text in Luke chapter 13 when there had been a a tragedy in a nearby town. A tower had fallen and and many people had been killed. And Jesus says the most amazing thing to the crowd. He says, do you think that the Tower of Siloam fell on uh, those people because they were uniquely wicked? Because they had offended God in some particular special way? You think that's what happened? And the reason he asks is that's exactly what they think happened. That's why bad things happen to people. They've, they've, they, were, they were bad people and, and God got them. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He's preaching the reality of God to people who, who just assume that God didn't think their sin was a big deal. Well, God does think their sin is a big deal. And unless they repent, they will be lost. They will be destroyed. That's what Jesus proclaimed. He proclaimed the reality of the holiness of God, the corrupting presence of sin, and it needs to be dealt with. And Jesus came to deal with them. He came to atone for, you see, sins, our sins. Not generic, the idea of sin, but but your very real sin. Jesus came so that you could be fully forgiven. You, You could have your guilt fully and forever washed away. And you see, the, the weakness of the Day of Atonement is it, it was symbolic. It, it, the, everyone understood that the bloods of bulls and goats can't actually cleanse us. They, a, a, an animal can't be your substitute. Not in truth. Only a man can be a substitute. And that's the beauty of Jesus when he says in Hebrews chapter 2, a body you have prepared for me. Jesus came in human form, in human flesh, precisely, so that he could be our true substitute. He could really, in truth, bear our guilt and, in truth, atone for our sin by the shedding of his real human blood. That's the message of the New Testament, isn't it? John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is. That's why he came. 
And so the New Testament authors unashamedly proclaim that all the blessings of God's grace and favor, all the blessings of salvation now and forever come not simply through Jesus, but through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul rejoices that, quote, through the blood of Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the day of atonement. Justified, declared innocent by God because of the blood of Jesus Christ who bore all your sin and took them away. We are saved from the wrath of God. That's the gospel. In its, in its core essence, that's the gospel. And you see, that's the song that's sung in heaven. Revelation 5, verse 9, uh, where John sees the saints and angels worthy. They're, they're just singing with, with full voice, this thunderous acclamation. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Is he worthy? He's worthy. Why? Because he was the Lamb of God who sacrificed, who gave his life, and by his blood rescued us from the consuming fire of the holiness of God. And in that brought glory to the grace and justice of God. Friends, this is why Jesus came. To be the sacrifice that accomplishes once and for all what we could never do. And he did it alone. Just as Aaron had to go alone into that most holy place to make atonement, Jesus had to go alone to that cross, entering not into an earthly tabernacle, but into heaven itself. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's why we don't do Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur happened at the cross of Calvary. And it'll never be, it'll never happen again. It does not need to be redone. Well, how can we know it was effective? Well, a living Aaron coming out of the holy place was evidence that the atonement was effective. A living Jesus coming out of the tomb is proof that it was effective. The, the sacrifice was acceptable. The atonement was made. The sins were forgiven. That's the wonder of the historical facts of the Christian gospel. The tomb is empty, and that is God's proof that the atonement was successful. And then do you remember what happened when, when Jesus died on the cross? Remember what happened in, in the temple in, to that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place? It was ripped in two, top to bottom. God ripped it. God, you see, in the death of Jesus Christ now says, the way to God is open and sinners are free to come where one, only one man and only once a year, only the high priest and only in a specific way could enter into that holy place. The, 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 the veil is ripped and God now invites sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation to flood into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's our message to the world. Maybe it's what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you've never actually faced the fearsome reality of God 
a thrice holy God. In his, all of his consuming holiness, and, and you've never really understood then the devastating, corrupting power of your sin. And friend, this morning, God himself is calling you to face it and then to repent. You see, he's made a way. He's, he's calling you to confess your sin and turn to Jesus Christ as your only hope for forgiveness. You cannot fix yourself. Your good intentions, your faith, your prayers, your best efforts cannot and will not make you right with God. Only the blood of Jesus can. But the promise is, friend, as you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you do what Aaron did over the head of the goat, you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you confess your sin over the crucified body of your Lord Jesus Christ. You confess all the things that you've done that have offended God, all that you are, and you give it to Jesus, dying in your place. The promise is that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How about those who've already come to Christ in faith? Well, the question I would just say is, are we living in the glorious truth of it? Are we living in the bold confidence it it provides? You see, the whole point of Christ's sacrifice was to open the way into the holy place, the most holy place, into the presence of God. And so the writer of the Hebrews, he he just camps on the Day of Atonement, chapters 9 and 10. And shows how Jesus has done this incredible thing for us. He's, he's made it possible for us, Christians, to go boldly into the presence of God, knowing that our sins are washed away, knowing the guilt is gone. There are a lot of Christians who doubt that. Has God really forgiven me for that thing I did 30 years ago? What about the thing I did just this past week? Is it possible? It doesn't seem possible. I, I surely must have to clean up my act a bit first. Could God really forgive me for the wicked things I've said and thought and done? The evil that I, that I know dwells within me? Could it, could, it, could it really truly be removed? God's word to you this morning, friend, is yes. Yes. Believe the gospel. Let it go. Give it to Jesus and let, it, let him take it away forever. It will never return. When you stand before that holy fire on the last day, you can stand with confidence, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can live your, day to, your, your, your life today with confidence. All the love and grace of God is for you in Jesus Christ. You can boldly, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus calls you to do it. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, we need to see again the reality of, of our God. We, we easily forget. And we, we needed to re- be reminded again, Lord, of the truth of our sin. It is offensive, it's abhorrent, it's, it's corrupting, polluting, perverting. It has no place in the household of God. And yet, Lord, you know us. And we confess our sin. Lord, our sin this week, our sin maybe today. We confess, Lord, the idols that lead to our impatience and our anger with other people. We, uh, we confess, Lord, 
our addictions to money, to work, to pornography, maybe to alcohol or drugs, the things that have power in our life that are completely contrary to your will. We confess, Lord, that we've made you in our own image and that is so dishonoring. We confess, Lord, that we've been proud and we have no place for pride. And Father, we, we confess our sin because we believe that you've provided us a substitute in Jesus Christ and that as we confess our sin and lay them on Jesus, they are forever gone. You promise that. And so, Father, we take you at your word. And I pray, Lord, that your people that are here this morning who've been in bondage to guilt and shame for years because they remember what they were like and what they did and, and, and they know what they are by nature. Lord, I pray you'd free them today forever from that shame and that bondage that they would have absolute conviction that it's gone. All the perversion, all the, all the lostness, all the wickedness, all the evil, it's gone as we confess it. And Lord, maybe the person who's never come to face-to-face with the reality of God, that this would be the day where they bend their knee. And this is the day they find truly Jesus as their only hope. Father, we believe that your word is powerful, that it accomplishes the task for which it was sent. We pray that, Lord God, then you would do that. And may it be for saving purposes, not for condemning ones. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing a song about the grace of God. Let's celebrate God's goodness to us in Jesus.